Let's continue our study of Revelation chapter 10. Let's summarize once again the, um, the content of Revelation chapter 10 at the bottom of uh, the page where it says origin, identity, mission, and message of the remnant. I have page 11, is that what you have? Page 11? Okay, here's the summary. The mighty angel comes down from heaven to earth. His physical characteristics are given. He brings in his hand an open scroll. He must have opened the scroll before he came down. He places one foot on the sea and one foot on dry land. He speaks with the roar of a lion. And when he speaks, his uh, roar echoes as seven thunders. Then he swears an oath to the Creator, stating that time will be no longer. He gives the book to John with instructions to eat it, and John eats it, sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. Then John is told to prophesy again, and after saying that he should prophesy again, he is commanded to measure the temple. And then, the last point, even though it's earlier in Revelation 10, the last point is the mystery of God finished when the seventh angel is about to sound. Chronologically, that comes after all of these other things. That's why I put it last. Who is the messenger? This messenger is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. So must this message be crucially important? Absolutely. Now let's talk about the identity of the book. At the bottom of page 12, the identity of the book. There is only one book in the Bible that was ever sealed to be opened at the time of the end. And that is the book that is referred to in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. So let's read that verse. It says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. So would people be able to understand what's in the book until the time of the end? No. But would it be understood at the time of the end? Yes, because it's sealed until the time of the end. And then it says that at the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And I added there in brackets, knowledge of what? Knowledge of what is contained in the little book. Now the question is, what is this little book? We just studied about it in our last session. What is this book? The entire book of Daniel, right? No, okay, the portion of Daniel that has to do with the 2300 days. Which chapters are those? Daniel chapter 8 through 12. They all have the same central theme. Now, the tense of the verb in Revelation 10 verse 10, verse 10 verse 2, is important. Literally, the Greek word that describes the opening of the book is in a perfect tense. And it should be translated that he had in his hand the book, the one having been opened. Which clearly indicates that before it was opened, it was what? Closed. So is this the same book that Daniel 12 verse 4 refers to? No doubt whatsoever about it. In other words, the book was closed, and then it was opened in heaven, immediately before the angel came down to the earth, and swore the oath, that time would be no longer. Now the little book 
of Daniel 12 verse 4, was unsealed when the judgment hour message was proclaimed between 1798 and 1844. Daniel 8.14 provides the judgment chronology. Do you understand what I mean by that? It gives you the 2300 day prophecy, so it tells you when the judgment is going to begin. So Daniel 8.14 gives you the judgment chronology, and Revelation 14.6 and 7 gives you the judgment hour message. So Daniel 8 tells you when, and Revelation 14 tells you what the message would be, the judgment hour message. Ellen White in Manuscript Releases, volume 18, page 15, had this to say, It was the Lion of the tribe of Judah who unsealed the book, so now we know it was Jesus who unsealed it, right? And gave to John the revelation of what should be in these last days. Daniel stood in his lot to bear his testimony, that is not in person, but through his writings, which was sealed until the time of the end. Now notice, when is, when is it unsealed? Notice carefully, Daniel stood in his lot to bear his testimony, which was sealed until the time of the end, when the first angel's message should be proclaimed to, to our world. So when was the book unsealed? when the first angel's message was proclaimed. And what does the first angel say? The hour of his judgment has come. Is that the same theme as the sanctuary shall be cleansed? Yes. Absolutely. Now, these matters are of infinite importance in these last days. But, while many shall be purified and made white and tried, the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. The book of Daniel is unsealed in the Revelation to John and carries us forward to the last scenes of this earth's history. Uh, in another, another statement that we find in Great Controversy, page 356, Ellen White explains when this book was unsealed. It was unsealed when the judgment hour message was proclaimed. The 2300 day prophecy was understood. She says this, the message of salvation has been preached in all ages, but this message is a part of the gospel which could, which could be proclaimed only in the last days, for only then would it be true that the hour of judgment had come. Could Martin Luther preach the hour of his judgment has come? Why not? Because the judgment didn't begin in Martin Luther's day. The prophecies present a succession of events leading down to the opening of the judgment. This is especially true of the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel 7? Lion, bear, leopard, dragon, ten horns, little horn, judgment. So she's saying here that the prophecies present a succession of events, that's Daniel 7, leading down to the opening of the judgment, which is when the Ancient of Days sits and the Son of Man comes to where the Ancient of Days was. Now she continues saying, this is true especially of the book of Daniel, but that part of his prophecy which related to the last days, so it's not all of Daniel, Daniel was bidden to close up and seal to the time of the end. Not till we reach this time could a message concerning the judgment be proclaimed based on the fulfillment of these prophecies. But at the time of the end, says the prophet, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. So what is the little book that was unsealed? it was Daniel 8 through 12. And what is the central theme of Daniel 8 through 12? The judgment 
our message. The 2300 days. And in this statement that I read before when we dealt with a little, a little sealed book of Daniel, uh, Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 971, Ellen White says, The unsealing of the little book was the message in relation to time. So what was the one thing that was not sealed that was that was not unsealed until the time of the end? The 2300 day prophecy. That is the little book. That's important. Because that's the little book that that John is told to eat. It's not all of Daniel. Daniel 1 through 7 would not have caused a disappointment. What causes a disappointment is the 2300 day prophecy, the time element. Now, when was the book opened is a very important point. It was opened for people to study and proclaim toward the end of human history, just before the seventh angel blows his trumpet and the mystery of God is finished. Did you catch that in the passage? Just before the seventh angel blows his trumpet, this angel opens the book and presents the message from the book. Now notice Ellen White corroborates this point uh, in a statement that is found in Great Controversy 356. She says, no such message, she's referring to Revelation 14, 6 and 7 where it says the hour of His judgment has come, no such message was, has ever been given in past ages. Paul, as we have seen, did not preach it. He pointed his brethren into the then dis far distant future for the coming of the Lord. The reformers did not proclaim it. Martin Luther placed the judgment about 300 years in the future from his day. Now when was the little book opened then? But since 1798, when does the time of the end begin? The book is to be sealed until the time of the end. When is the time of the end? 1798. So since 1798, the book of Daniel has been unsealed. Did William Miller and the Millerites preach that the judgment was upcoming? They didn't understand what the prophecy meant, but they were right about the chronology. Did Joseph Wolfe preach it? Yes. How about Lacunza? He preached it. There were many after 1798 that preached the judgment hour message, that the judgment was about to arrive. Jesus was soon to come. And they studied the prophecy of the 2300 days and they said, you know, that this prophecy was going to be fulfilled in 1843 and then they adjusted it to 1844. So the, the little book was, before Jesus descended with the book and told John to eat it, the book was unsealed in heaven. And the date of its unsealing was in 1798. Is that point clear? Now, this message was to be of global extension, right? This global message is presented, now listen to this, is presented symbolically at the beginning of the chapter. What is the symbol that is used to indicate that it's going to be universal? The feet of the angel are placed on the sea and on the land. Is that a symbolic portrayal of the message going to the whole world? Yes, but at the end, literal, it uses literal language and explains what it means to have the foot on the sea and on the land. John is told to prophesy to what? Again, to people, nations, tongues, and kings. 
So placing the foot on the sea and on the land means a universal message. And then this is explained when he's told to prophesy again. This time there's not a foot on the sea and on the land. This time it explains what that means. People, nations, tongues, and kings. Now notice what Ellen White had to say in volume 2 of Selected Messages, page 107 and 108. The message of Revelation 14 proclaiming the hour of God's judgment is come is given in the time of the end, and the angel of Revelation 10 is represented as having one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, showing that the message will be carried to distant lands, the ocean will be crossed, and the islands of the sea will hear the proclamation of the last message of warning to our world. In other words, the foot on the sea and on the land refers to the global reach of this message. Uh, it, all, it could also mean that the message is going to the old world and to the new world. Because in Revelation, there is a beast that rises from the sea, that's Europe. And there's another beast that rises from the earth, that's the United States. So in other words, the message is to go to the new world and to the old world. And interestingly enough, the act of planting the feet, according to Deuteronomy 11.24, means that you're staking that ground and you're saying, this is mine. You can read that text. God says, wherever you plant your feet, that'll be yours. So Jesus is staking claim to the earth by the judgment that He's going to perform. So far, so good? Okay, now let's talk about the seven thunders. You notice that when He comes down with open book, suddenly Jesus roars like a lion, and when He roars, you hear seven thunders come out. In other words, the echo of His voice is seven thunders. Now what are these seven thunders? Well, we need to go to John 12, 28 and 29. These were not just noise. The thunders were not just thunders, like you know, on a, on a rainy day, you know, when we have a thunderstorm. The, the thunder doesn't have any rhyme or reason, it's just noise. But the seven thunders, when the, when the lion rages and roars, when Jesus roars like a lion, He actually speaks an intelligible message. And the echo is the thunders. Now what are the seven thunders? Well, we need to go back to John 12, 28 and 29, where thunders are explained. It says there, now Jesus is close to the point of His death, and uh, He actually speaks to His Father, and He says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Could the voice be understood? Was the message understandable? It most certainly was. But now notice how the people reacted. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. So did the thunders have an intelligible message? Were they spoken words? Yes, there was something that Jesus spoke when he came down with the open book. And the thunders were, the peals of thunder were, were the echo of the words that he spoke. Now let's notice several important points. 
John understood what the thunders uttered and was about to write. Remember we read this? But was forbidden by the angel to write what the thunders uttered. So did John understand that the thunders were intelligible? Absolutely. The little book was opened, which means that its message could be studied and understood, right? On the other hand, what the thunders uttered could be understood by John, but he was forbidden to write it out. So you have the little book that's open, it can be understood, but you have the thunders that utter words, and John is told, this is not to be understood right now. The message uttered by the mighty angel was given to John, and then the message was sealed. The book was unsealed, but what the thunders uttered was sealed. Are you with me? The events that the thunders uttered, very important point, must have transpired sometime between 1798 and 1844, because they occurred after the book was opened in 1798, and before the angels swear the oath in 1844. Are you following my point? Yeah, he descends with the, he opened the book in 1798, he descends with the book in his hand, then he utters his voice, and you have the seven thunders, and that is before he says that time will be no longer. And, and he says time will be no longer in 1844, there will be no more prophetic dates after that. We're, we're going to study this a little bit further on later. So this is happening somewhere between what? Somewhere between 1798 and... 1844. Now according to Ellen White, the seven thunders uttered a delineation of events that would transpire between 1842 and 1844. In other words, what the, what the thunders uttered were events that took place between 1842 and 1844. Some people are making the thunders future. They are Seventh-day Adventist futurists. There is no there's no necessity to make the thunders future. The spirit of prophecy is clear about when these thunders uttered. It was between 1798 and 1844, more specifically between 1842 and 1844. She seems to indicate that the thunders announced that the Millerites would suffer a disappointment when Jesus did not come as expected about the year 1843 and in the spring of 1844. So basically what the thunders uttered was that there was going to be a disappointment. Was it good for the people to know that? Was it good for the Millerites to know that they were wrong about the chronology? No, it wasn't. It wasn't good for them to know that at that point, between 1842 and 1844. Let's notice why, what Ellen White says about this. Why the thunders were sealed, what the voice said was sealed. The Millerites did not need to know that at that particular point. And let, let's notice the reason why. Seventh Heavens Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 971. The special light given to John, which was expressed in the seven thunders, was a delineation of events which would transpire under the first and second angel's messages. Do you know when the first and second angel's messages were proclaimed? 1842 to 1844. So did the thunders sound already? Yes, they did. And now notice, it was not best for the people to know these things. John knew, 
but John was told, seal it, don't explain it. It was not best for the people to know these things, for what reason? For their pace, faith must necessarily be tested. Now there's another couple of statements, really eye-opening statements of the spirit of prophecy. One of them is in early writings, 235 and 236. You're aware that the Millerites set a couple of dates before October 22, 1844. First they thought he was going to come about the year 1843, then they said in the spring of 1844. And then they realized in the summer of 1844 that Jesus did not come in the spring because the Day of Atonement was not in the spring, it was in the fall. That's called the seventh month movement. Samuel Snow preached at a camp meeting. And he said, hey, you know, we were expecting Jesus to fulfill the Day of Atonement in the spring, but the Day of Atonement was not in the spring, it was in the fall. And so you had the midnight cry, the awakening, in the summer of 1844. Notice what Ellen White says about the, these first disappointments. Not the great one, but the, but the first two. I saw the people of God joyful in expectation, looking for their Lord. But God designed to prove them. His hand covered a mistake in the reckoning of the prophetic periods. Isn't that interesting? And what was the mistake? They said 1843 because they did not reckon the year zero. You see, 1 BC jumps to 1 AD. There's only one year between 1 B.C. and 1 A.D., but they counted 1 B.C. and 1 A.D. as two years. That's why they came to 1843. They should have counted it only as one, because from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., there's one year. Now, notice, she continues saying, those who were looking for their Lord did not discover this mistake, and the most learned men who opposed the time also failed to see it. God designed that His people should meet with a disappointment. The time passed and those who had looked with joyful expectation for their Savior were sad and disheartened. While those who had not loved the appearing of Jesus but embraced the message through fear were pleased that He did not come at the time of expectation. Their profession had not affected the heart and purified the life. The passing of the time was well calculated to reveal such hearts. They were the first to turn and ridicule the sorrowful, disappointed ones who really loved the appearing of their Savior. I saw the wisdom of God in proving His people and giving them a searching test to discover those who would shrink and turn back in the hour of trial. So basically the seven thunders uttered that there would be a disappointment, they would miscalculate the prophetic periods. And God told, told John, don't explain it. There's a second statement, early writings 236. She says, those faithful disappointed ones who could not understand, why could they not understand? Because the thunders were what? Sealed. They could not understand why their Lord did not come, were not left in darkness. Again, they were led to their Bibles to search the prophetic periods. The hand of the Lord was removed from the figures and the mistake was explained. They saw that the prophetic periods reached to 1844 and that the same evidence which they had presented to show that the prophetic periods closed in 1843 proved that they would terminate 
1844. Now, some have misunderstood an Ellen White statement where she appears to state that the thunders will sound in the future. She wrote this quotation in 1900. So presumably, the thunders had not yet uttered their voice at that time. See, people, people, are, not, people are sometimes careless in the way that they handle the writings of Ellen White. They say she wrote in 1900 that the thunders are future, so they could not have been fulfilled between 1842 and 1844. But you have to look at this carefully. Here's the quotation. After these seven thunders uttered their voices, the injunction comes to John as to Daniel, in regard to the little book, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered. Now listen carefully. These relate to future events. Future events from whose time? From the time of Daniel and John. There's the key. Not future from 1844. And you're going to see that clearly. These relate to future events, which will be disclosed in their order. Daniel says, stand in his lot at the end of the days. John sees the little book unsealed. So from whose perspective is this being seen? From the perspective of John. It says, then Daniel's, then Daniel's prophecies have their proper place in the first, second, and third angel's messages to be given to the world. The unsealing of the little book was the message in relation to time. Now the crucial question here is this. Were the seven thunders going to utter events that were future from the time frame of Daniel and John? Or from the time frame of Ellen White? A careful reading of the quotation reveals that the seven thunders are future from the time frame of Daniel and John, not from the time frame of Ellen White. The sentence before the quotation is the key. Before the quotation that I just read from, Ellen White says, After these seven thunders uttered their voices, the injunction comes to John as to Daniel in regard to the little book. Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered. So from which perspective are you to see the seven thunders future? From the time period of John and Daniel or from, the, from 1900? From John and Daniel. The context of Ellen White's statement makes this absolutely crystal clear. Now let's talk about the oath. So the angel utters his voice, seven thunders sound, He's told, seal it. It's not good for the people to understand this at this point. So there was going to be a disappointment. They were going to misunderstand some chronological details. And they were going to be disappointed. Why would God do that? Because He wanted to sift those who truly love the Lord from those who did not love the Lord. You say, why would He do something like that? Well, let me ask you something. Did Jesus choreograph the triumphal entry? into Jerusalem? Did he tell the disciples to go get a donkey? Did he sit on it? Did he allow the people to proclaim it, Oh, Hosanna in the highest, the King of the Jews! Did Jesus know that they were severely wrong in their understanding? So why didn't he say something? Because it was necessary to reveal who was who. Are you with me? When the crisis came, what happened? There was a sifting. And those who were faithful remained. 
and the hypocrites were shaken out. So if Jesus could do it at the triumphal entry, why couldn't He do it here? To show who was sincere and who was not sincere in the Millerite movement. Now let's talk about the oath. Are we doing well so far? Okay, the oath. After the angel had descended with the open book, 1798, and the thunders had uttered their voices, 1842 and 1843, and actually up to the spring of 1844, an announcement was made with an oath that prophetic time would be no longer. When was that oath made? 1844. Why would the voice say that time will be no longer? What, what time was that referring to, the oath? Time will be no longer. Prophetic, which prophetic time specifically? The 2300 days. In other words, after Daniel 8.14 is fulfilled in 1844, there will be no more prophecies having to do with time. And we have all kinds of Adventist futurists who are reapplying the 1260, 1290, 1335, some of them are reapplying the 2300 days, and they're saying the 42 months are future. It's a mess. And what it does is it dilutes the true meaning of Bible prophecy. Now, after the angels descended then with the open book, 1798, the thunders uttered their voices, 1842 to 1844, at least the spring of 1844, an announcement was made with an oath that prophetic time would be no longer. That would be 1844. It is obvious that the declaration, time will be no longer, cannot have been made by the angel before the 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half times, three and a half days, and 2300 days were fulfilled. Is that clear? Ellen White explains in Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 108, this time, which the angel declares with a solemn oath, is not the end of this world's history, neither of probationary time, but of prophetic time, which should precede the advent of our Lord. That is, the people will not have another message upon definite time. Now what part of that don't you understand? After this period of time, reaching from 1842 to 1844, there can be no definite tracing of the prophetic time. The longest reckoning reaches to the autumn of 1844. She also says in volume 2 of Selected Messages, page uh, 108, this message announces the end of the prophetic periods. The disappointment of those who expected to see our Lord in 1844 was indeed bitter to those who had so ardently looked for His appearing. It was in the Lord's order that this disappointment should come and that hearts should be revealed. Now how do we know, aside from what the Spirit of Prophecy says, because she says that this is not the end of probationary time and it is not the, time, uh, the end of time in terms of the Second Coming, how do we know from the Bible that this is talking about a different kind of ending of time that time will be no longer, uh, and it's not talking about chronological time. Two things that we need to take into account, very important. This announcement is made during the period of the sixth trumpet, and Jesus does not come to take over His kingdom until the seventh trumpet. So could time will, will be no longer the end of the world? 
No, because then the end of the world comes in the seventh trumpet. But it's at the sixth trumpet that the angel says that time will be no longer. So it has to be a different kind of time than the end of time, as we refer to. And even more importantly, after the announcement was made that time will be no longer, John was instructed to prophesy again. How could he do this if the world had come to an end? Is that clear? How could he prophesy again if time had come to an end? History. It must mean that the time that would be no longer has to be a different kind of time. The translation in most versions, there should no longer be any delay, is incorrect. In the book of Revelation, the word chronos, time, is used three other times. And in none of them can the, word, can the word be translated in such a way as delay. The word time appears in at least 30 places in the New Testament, but not once is it translated delay by modern versions except in this verse. That's pretty telling, isn't it? The New Testament has a, word, a way of expressing delay. For example, in Matthew 24, 48, the word chronizo is used of the unfaithful servant who says, My master is delayed. So if John had wanted to express delay, he had a Greek word that he could have used to express delay. It simply means time will be no longer. It's not talking about the end of the world or the end of probationary time. It's talking about prophetic time. No more time periods having to do with prophecy, in other words. Now Ellen White has consistently warned us not to set dates and not to establish time. Notice this statement on page 17 of your syllabus. Dear brethren, the Lord has shown me that the message of the third angel must go and must be proclaimed to the scattered children of the Lord. And that it should not be hung on time, for time never will be a test again. I saw that some were getting a false excitement arising from preaching time, that the third angel's message was stronger than time can be. I saw that this message can stand on its own foundation and that it needs not time to strengthen it, and that it will go in mighty power and do its work and will be cut short in righteousness. That's in Review and Herald, July 21, 1851. In Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 84, she says, There will always be false and fanatical movements made by persons in the church who claim to be led by God, those who will run before they are sent, and will give a day and date for the occurrence of unfulfilled prophecy. The enemy is pleased to have them do this, for their successive failures and leading into false lines cause confusion and unbelief. Pretty clear, right? Now both oaths, oaths, there's one in Daniel 12, 7 and Revelation 10, verse 6, begin with an angel swearing in the name of the eternal God who lives forever and ever, but Revelation adds that God is the creator of heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it. This description, listen carefully, this description of the creator clearly links the little book episode of Revelation 10 with the first angel's message, where a call is made to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. 
So do you know where the message is to prophesy again? It's the first angel's message. Thus the prophesying again of verse 11 is directly linked with the first angel's message. God's end time remnant will make a direct appeal for, for people to worship the Creator. This appeal to the Creator in Revelation 10 verse 6 is a clear allusion to the fourth commandment of God's law and ultimately to the institution of the Sabbath at creation. Now let's talk about the mystery of God. Is the mystery of God going to be finished shortly before the seventh trumpet blows? Yes. In the seventh trumpet, Jesus takes over the kingdoms of the world. You're aware of that. That's when He empirically takes over the kingdoms of the world. But shortly before the seventh trumpet blows, when Jesus takes over the kingdom and is coming, the mystery of God is finished. Now what is the finishing of the mystery of God? Well, let's go to the paragraph, the last paragraph on page 17. What the text is saying is that the declaration that time will be no longer is made during the period of the sixth trumpet, but the mystery of God will not be finished until the seventh trumpet is about to begin to sound. So is there a period of time between when time is no longer and when the mystery of God is finished? Absolutely. This clearly shows that the end of prophetic time comes during the sixth trumpet and before the seventh. Now the question is, what is the mystery of God? We're running short on time, so let me just, uh, let me just synthesize what the mystery is. Do you know what the mystery is? The mystery of God? It's the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is the mystery hidden from ages past. You can read it in Romans 16, 25 to 27. Ellen White adds her testimony in Signs of the Times, March 25, 1897, where she says that the, the incarnation is a mystery. The union of divinity with humanity is a mystery. And it was hidden from eternal ages. And then she says at the end of this quotation, and this wonderful mystery, the incarnation of Christ and the atonement that He made, must be declared to every son and daughter of Adam, whether Jew or Gentile. So what is the mystery of God? The proclamation of the gospel. What is going to happen shortly before the, shortly before the seventh trumpet sounds? The mystery of God is going to be finished. What does that mean? the preaching of the gospel is going to come to an end. Does probation close before the seventh trumpet? Yes or no? You caught the nuance. Yes, it does. Because it says the mystery of God is finished when the seventh trumpet is about to sound. If the mystery of God is the preaching of the gospel, that means that the preaching of the gospel will be finished Shortly before the seventh trumpet sounds, when Jesus comes to take over the kingdom. Is that clear? Now, Revelation 22, 10 through 12 has the clear sequence. Notice, we have three points of time in, this, in these verses. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, So if the book isn't sealed, can a message come from the book? Can people understand the message? Is probation still open? Yes. 
He said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, which is the preaching from the little book, for the time is at hand. What time is at hand? When probation will close and the mystery of God will be finished. And what will happen when that takes place? He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. And then, after that declaration is made, only then does Jesus say, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Do you see three points of time there? A message is coming from the little book, or from the book of Revelation, the book is open. People can be saved. But the time is near when the declaration will be made that he who is filthy will still be filthy, and he that is holy will still be holy. And then after that, Jesus comes to reward His servants, which is the seventh trumpet. He comes to take over His kingdom and give the kingdom to His people. Now do we have the same sequence in Daniel chapter 7? Of course we do. Jesus, the this Ancient of Days, goes in heaven. He sits. The judgment sits. The books are open. Jesus comes to the Father. And what is Jesus given in heaven? A kingdom. And then it says the time came when He took over the kingdom. And He gives the kingdom to His people. So you have the three points of time in Daniel chapter 7 as well. Now, John is a representative person. We're going to talk about the eating of the book now. These words are from William Shea, who was uh, my teacher at the seminary many years ago. He wrote on Revelation 10, and notice what he says. John lived at the beginning of the Christian era when he received this vision. But the prophetic scene itself looks down toward the end of time, long after John's death. you understand that point? Would John be alive during the period of the sixth trumpet? Towards the end of human history? No. And yet he's told to eat the book. It's going to be sweet and then bitter. He should therefore be taken as a representative of those who will bear the final message. The part he was acting out under those circumstances. It would have been physically impossible for John to have borne this message to all the groups he was told to address. We may look therefore for a group or movement to fulfill this commission in the end time. Is that clear? John has to be a representative person. Because this is happening during the period of the sixth trumpet, right before the seventh trumpet, when, when the world ends. So how could John, during the period of the sixth trumpet, be eating the book? If he died in the first century, or maybe early in the second century, he couldn't. So he has to be representative of the people of God. Now let's notice the chiastic structure of Revelation 10, 9-11. You remember I mentioned the, the order, bitter, sweet, and then sweet and bitter? Now you're going to see the reason why. You see, ABC has its equivalent in CBA. This is the chiasm. In the A line, the angel tells John to take the scroll and eat it. 
He's told it will be bitter in your stomach. That's the B line. And the C line says in your mouth it will be what? Sweet as honey. Then you have the C line in reverse order. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. B. It was bitter in my stomach. And then you must prophesy again. So what does it mean to eat the scroll? It means to prophesy again. To assimilate it and then prophesy. Are you with me? I'm going to prove it to you. The chiastic structure is important because it shows that John eating the scroll in verse 9a is the same as uttering a prophecy from it in verse 11. Thus when John ate the scroll a message came out from it the first time but it became necessary for the message to be preached again from the same scroll. It is very clear that the epistle that deals with the eating of the book precedes Revelation 10 verse 7 in time. Correct? Because 10 verse 7 the mystery of God is finished. So the eating of the book has to happen before that. How do we know that this is the case? The reason is obvious. After John eats the little book, he is told to prophesy again and to measure the temple. If the mystery of God, which is the preaching of the gospel, had already been finished and probation had closed, what good would it do to prophesy again? About the contents of the book and to talk about the investigative judgment. So verses 8 through 11 take us back to events that occurred between verses 6 and 7. Now sit down and examine this. Look at the chart that I mentioned to you. The chart. Now let's talk about the bittersweet experience. The content, what is the little book again? What does the little book contain? It's the prophecy of the what? Of the 2300 days. When do the 2300 days end? October 22, 1844. What is the central theme? The judgment. The content of the little book causes a bittersweet experience. Sweet at first, but then bitter in the aftermath. We have already identified the book as the portion of Daniel that has to do with the 2300 days and the judgment. This must mean that the message of the judgment would be sweet at first, and then would become bitter. Somehow the message of the judgment in this little book would be sweet, and then it would become what? Bitter, because that's what the book contained. That the eating of the scroll, this is important, that the eating of the scroll means two things. First of all, it refers to the assimilation of the message, means to assimilate the message. Secondly, it means to share it with God's people. This is corroborated by the closest biblical parallel in Ezekiel 3, 1 through 4, where the prophet is told to eat the scroll, and then he is ordered to go and share the message with Israel. Notice Ezekiel 3, 1 through 4. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll. So that's assimilating the message, right? Eat the scroll, eat the message. And then it says, and go. Speak to the house of Israel. Does that fit the chiastic structure? He's told, eat the scroll. And they said, you must prophesy again. So eating the scroll means eating the scroll and sharing the message. So it says, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. 
eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Is that a helpful passage? In scripture the words of God are described as being sweet. We are told that the manna was sweet like honey, and the manna represents the Word of God. Now notice what Ellen White had to say about the sweetness of the book. She says, The comprehension of the truth, the glad reception of the message, is represented in the eating of the little book. The truth in regard to the time of the advent of our Lord was a precious message to our soul. But then it became bitter. In closing, let me read you a few statements from some of the pioneers. Hiram Edson. You know who Hiram Edson was? He's the individual who had the insight that Jesus had moved from the holy to the most holy place. The day after disappointment. He says, we confidently expected to see Jesus Christ and all the holy angels with him. And that his voice would call up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all the ancient worthies. And dear friends which had been torn us from death. From us from death. And that our trials and sufferings with our earthly pilgrimage would close. And we should be caught up to meet our coming Lord. To be forever with him. To inhabit bright golden mansions in the golden home city prepared for the redeemed. Our expectations were raised high. And thus we looked for our coming Lord until the clock told twelve at midnight. The day had then passed, and our disappointment became a certainty. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawned. These people love the Lord, folks. I mused in my own heart saying, my Advent experience has been the richest and brightest of all my Christian experience. If this had proved a failure, what was the rest of my Christian experience worth? Has the Bible proved a failure? Is there no God, no heaven, no golden home city, no paradise? Is all this but a cunningly devised fable? Is there no reality to our fondest hope and expectation of these things? And thus, we had something to grieve and weep over if all our fond hopes were lost. And as I said, we wept till the day dawned. Can you sense the bitterness? Washington Morse, another one of those who experienced the disappointment. This is in the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, May 7, 1901. He says, The passing of the time was a bitter disappointment. Notice his terminology. It was a bitter disappointment. True believers has, had given up all for Christ and had shared His presence as never before. The love of Jesus filled every soul. And with inexpressible desire they prayed, Come Lord Jesus and come quickly. But He did not come. And now to turn again to the cares, perplexities and dangers of life in full view of jeering and reviling unbelievers who scoffed as never before was a terrible trial of faith and patience. When, Elders Himes, when Elder Himes visited Waterbury, Vermont, 
a short time after the passing of the time, and stated that the brethren should prepare for another cold winter, my feelings were almost un incontrollable. I left the place of meeting and wept like a child. Sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. William Miller said, It passed. And the next day it seemed as though all the demons from the bottomless pit were let loose upon us. The same ones and many more who were crying for mercy two days before were, not mix, were now mixed with the rabble and mocking, scoffing and threatening in a most blasphemous manner. You remember the triumphal entry in the times of Christ? You know, people say, Adventists, their church is based on a disappointment. No problem for me. Because the Bible predicted the disappointment. Didn't the Bible predict the disappointment? Of course it did. We can look, we can look back, and, and, and hindsight is twenty twenty. We say, yeah, we, we started with a disappointment, even though the Adventist church didn't exist at that time. Yeah, our movement began with a disappointment. But you know what? So did the Christian church. Had Jesus tried to tell the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer and he was going to die, and he was going to res resurrect the third day? Did he say that explicitly? Unambiguously. Jesus said it. At the triumphal entry, did Jesus allow them to put him on a donkey? To parade him through? Kings sat on donkeys to be paraded through the city and to be proclaimed king. Oh, wow! Did Jesus know that they were going to be severely disappointed? Bitterly disappointed? Yes. Did he know that they misunderstood the event that was going to happen? The timing was right because Jesus was going to fulfill the Passover. But the event was wrong. Were they severely disappointed? Absolutely. So what happened? Afterwards they studied scripture. And they discovered the reason of the disappointment. And as a result, they founded the Christian church. Amen. So what's the difference between that and what happened in 1844? They also were wrong about the event. And they were right about the timing. The idea of the coming of Jesus was also sweet. Oh, how they longed for, for the king to come and sit on the throne in Jerusalem. But they misunderstood prophecy. Not the, not the timing, but the event. And as a result, when Jesus did not fulfill prophecy the way they thought, they were bitterly disappointed. But after the disappointment, the disciples gathered together and studied the Bible. Prophecies. And they said, hey, we were wrong about the event. Jesus was not going to sit on the throne of David. He, he really... The cross was his spiritual throne. We understand now, they said. And so they founded the Christian church. And then they went out and they prophesied again with the new enlightenment. So if you say that the Adventist church cannot be the true church of God, the remnant of God, because it started with a disappointment, then you have to discard the whole Christian church. 
because the Christian church also started with a disappointment. In fact, do you know something? Every time that Jesus begins a new work in the sanctuary, there's a disappointment. You say, really? Yeah. Were the disciples disappointed when Jesus went to heaven? Yeah, they said, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Jesus says, bye. <laughs> but then they studied prophecy, and they understood. Was there a disappointment, uh, was there a disappointment of John the Baptist and the message he presented concerning the Messiah? Oh yeah, he thought that the Messiah was going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And he ended up in prison, disappointed. But then he started studying prophecy. And the angels came and explained prophecy. He said, now I understand. Every time Jesus begins a new work in the sanctuary, there's a disappointment. So don't allow people to intimidate you by saying, oh, you Adventists, you began with a disappointment. Say, smile and say, yes, we did. <laughs> but today we're not disappointed. Because we have not believed cunningly devised fables. And then explain to them these things that we've studied from Daniel and from Revelation chapter 10. And people will marvel at the divine origin of the Seventh-day Adventist church. This is not any church. This is a prophetic church. Amen. This is a church that originated in prophecy and its destiny is bathed, bathed in prophecy. And the devil knows it. And that's why he, he, he's distracted the church to preach evangelical messages instead of preaching the distinctive present truth message of the Adventist Church. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.